0: Hello
1: and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 130, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood.
0: And me, Ravi Abbott.
1: Now, this podcast, um, I think we're quite proud to say covers quite a broad range of subjects in terms of retro gaming and technology and
0: yeah we have musicians programmers artists for all kinds of systems on hackers on last week's show with john
1: draper and we cover a broad range of systems as well you know be that consoles be that computers but i've got to say at heart ravi and i are total fanboys of Commodore and the Amiga.
0: Totally that's how we met which was just basically being fanboys of Amiga on YouTube. So
1: So we don't do that we don't make any pretense that we don't love Commodore and the Amiga and occasionally we might dedicate a show to a bit more about that kind of subject than others and I know there are people that love that too which is why if you are a fan of Commodore you are going to love today's podcast. Oh we've got
0: some good news haven't
1: we? (laughs) We've got two guests on this week. Now first of all This guy's been everywhere. You may have seen him on Retro Man Cave's channel um, promoting this new product that he's got, but also a very interesting history. And this is Stephen Jones.
0: Yeah, Stephen Jones. I remember going to Amiga shows, World of Amiga 99, and all of these old ones. Stephen would be on this stage. He'd be promoting stuff. He'd always be pushing stuff, even to the late periods. And he used to have a... Really cool company. They were called Cluster UK later on. But first they did the Siamese system. Do you remember that? Checkmate Digital, I think, was his first company, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, Checkmate, yeah.
1: Yes, yeah, so the Siamese, I remember that was a essentially a tower case where you could have an Amiga motherboard in there and a PC running Windows. Yeah, and it would have a
0: switch between...
1: Or a so, keyboard shortcut, I think you could do A well. KVM
0: switch. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it would literally switch between the Amiga and the PC. You could have the Windows in the other one, but also we had one with a Mac in, right. which is like three <laughs> machines in one, and that must have got very hot. Yeah, you need
1: liquid cooling for that, I imagine. Yeah. And also, I mean, the thing he's been talking about recently is the Amiga 1500, as he called it. Now, this was a product that back then, I mean, you remember the Amiga 500, that was a machine that they sold in, like, Dixons and Currys. Yeah, it was, and it was, it was,
0: they sold it as a gaming machine, really.
1: Yeah, the Batman pack, all that kind of thing. And it was cheap, about 399 quid. I bought mine for. Essentially, though, like I said, it was kids playing games in their bedroom. And if you wanted the kind of more professional Amiga with the slots and all that, the Amiga 2000 was way more expensive. Yeah,
0: they were kind of professional industrial machines used for, like, video editing and all of this. Well, this kind of converted your amiga 500 into a low-end professional machine uh, with risers in it it had like card expansions and uh, put it in a big box essentially a big box it was styled around a amiga 3000 yeah, it looked, well, I don't know if the
1: original one was, because I think it came out before the Amiga 3000. Well, it's kind of the
0: 1000, because it had the yeah. little carriage
1: bit underneath, and yeah. It did look really cool, though. And then Commodore obviously came out with their own computer called the Amiga
0: 1500. That's an interesting story in itself. That's that, going to be more in David Pleasant's as autobiography on that, yeah.
1: Yeah, there is. He's covering that, and also this Retro Manke video that we'll put in the show notes. He mentions it in there, too. But like you said, Stephen is bringing back the Amiga 1500 project as the Amiga 1500 Plus. Now, this is a brand new case that looks like the Amiga 3000 that you can put like a Raspberry Pi in there. You can put
0: anything in there, can't you? You You can turn it into a VR suite, you can have it as a server... And it's a desktop machine. I, uh, I've i not seen a desktop case for a long time, have
1: you? Apart from like home theatre ones, you sometimes get those, at like home home theatre PCs, but yeah, they're not very common anymore. And it looks really awesome, and he, I mean, he's been getting a lot of attention. He's going to be doing a Kickstarter very soon. So we're going to be talking to Stephen Jones all about a little bit of his history and the new Amiga 1500+. And if that wasn't enough for... Commodore fanboys amongst us. Then we're going to have Chris Ebbett on the show.
0: Oh, and we've got some exclusive news that Chris is going to be telling us about Project Hubbard, which is one of his latest projects, because Chris is a very respected kind of rearranger of C64 music. You know, he did the Back in Time albums, which turned into Back in Time Live. Mm -hmm. He's done Project Sidology. Uh, What was it? Ninja, Ninja, Ninja <laughs> This is hard to say, Ninja Musicology, a which was a, kind of the last Ninja, yeah. and it was a remake of that, but it also had all these bonuses, like beautiful vinyls, and now he's doing Project Hubbard, which is a, a book, seven deluxe albums, all in tribute to Rob Hubbard, and a, a concert as well.
1: Yeah, he's got quite a lot on his plate, I think it's fair to say. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, you're essentially right there, what he does is he gets these kind of quite raw Commodore 64 Sid tracks, and really polishes them and brings them in the 21st century and expands them far beyond. So, I mean, the thing about it is, you know, we talked to Rob Hubbard on the show before. When he was making these songs for these classic games on his Commodore 64, he was hearing the SID chip coming out of his monitor speakers, but in his head, the London Orchestra were playing it.
0: Yeah, because he was a musician initially (laughs) who then music on these kind of small concerts so that that was limited then but he's he's bringing it back he's uh, kind of bringing it to grander scale so when you hear all about that
1: turning commodore 64 music into orchestral pieces and more about project hubbard if you are a fan of rob uh, do hang around for that chris abbott is going to be our special guest on the retro hour podcast in around 15 minutes from now Now, before we get into our news stories, every week we cover the uh, big stories in the world of retro gaming, we just want to say a massive thank you to our donators. Now, we do have a little link on our website, theretrohour.com. That is a place where you can make, it's a completely optional donation, if you'd like to help us out into the running of the show, because, you know, the longer we do this show, which is weekly, uh, the more guests we get on, the more platforms we get the show on, it all adds up.
0: Yeah, and it just takes that hassle out of our hair, you know, when you're doing this every week, it can become a bit of a slog, but having that kind of donations just makes it, you know, much easier. It does, yeah, and it means we don't have to pay for the whole thing out of our own pocket, which is always nice. Being that I'm
1: moving house and you're doing yours up at the moment. Oh, so. God, I've got dust everywhere at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> so we want to say a huge thank you so much to Victoria Lamburn. Scott Goodwin. Matthew Green. And William Forrest. Who all made donations into the running of the Retro Hour podcast. You can do the same. And obviously anything you donate, big or small, it all 100% goes back into the running of the show and you'll get a mention on a future episode in the Hall of Fame. All you got to do is nip onto our website, theretrohour.com. We've got PayPal or cryptocurrency on there as well. Now, some stories that we need to talk about. We've been kind of covering the Nintendo Switch getting hacked over the last few weeks. I will admit, I haven't yet had the balls to hack my Switch. I haven't done it yet, I'm afraid.
0: Yeah, I haven't done it yet. Well, yeah, you your fiancé. It's my fiancé's <laughs> and basically I have to buy my own, <laughs> or else I won't be allowed. I just grab someone's in the street and start soft-modding it.
1: <laughs> well, this may be for the best because apparently... People have been getting their Nintendo Switches bricked, but not in a way you may expect.
0: No, so this is really obscure. I talked about Team Executor, who were the guys who were releasing this software, um, which basically allows you to run homebrew or backup games on the machine or play emulators on your Switch. So this is the kind of one piece of software that you need, uh, Team Execute. And they're selling this, are they? And they're selling this software, but what they've done is... (laughs) They've put in a piracy measure. So the software to play the pirate games has a piracy measure in it. And they've basically put some DRM in the code. So if you're trying to crack Team Executor's uh, copy or you're using a copy that's been distributed illegally online, then the tools contain a brick code, which... Is amazing because even when you're doing the mod yourself, you don't brick it. But they've put a brick code in there. <laughs> and it creates a total random password that detects anyone trying to crack it for distribution online. So it will just, like, randomize the password and you, you're just completely screwed. You can't get in there. That is a very definition of irony, isn't it? <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> the tool that you use to pirate has anti-piracy measures in there.
0: Yeah, and it, and it renders the switch unable to read or write files. So it's just useless. I'm sure you won't even be able to play your games on it or or even save your games.
1: That is pretty harsh.
0: Yeah, it is really harsh. And the damage is reversible, but you really need to know what you're doing.
1: So. You know what I'm kind of hoping? I'm hoping someone hacks that and <laughs> distributes it. Of course, it. that is fair, fair, surely.
0: Yeah, I guess they're thinking, oh, we've done this and, uh, and we've created something. Okay, it can play backups, but it can also play unrestricted software and stuff like this so so we need some money for it but I think protecting it with brick in DRM is a bit hardcore
1: the thing about it is if anyone knows how to make good DRM it's the guys that crack it in the first place I guess <laughs> yeah, isn't it so yeah, there you go sorry. maybe it's not able to get around that easily but uh, yeah that did make me laugh it's that was it, yeah it's an
0: interesting uh, <laughs> moral dilemma isn't it <laughs> so if you want to find
1: out more about that uh, we'll put a little link to the article on Nintendo Live because it's been getting a lot of column inches this
0: hack hasn't it yeah definitely and you know the fact is that it's a hardware hack. Yeah. So you, can't, you couldn't screw up your Switch until now. <laughs> so if
1: you want to find out more about that and any other story that we talk about, we put them all in our show notes at theretrohour.com, including uh, this link to a new Toe, Jam and Earl game. Now, this has been a while in the making.
0: Yeah, this uh, finished in way back in March 2015, the Kickstarter did for it. And uh, it was brand new toe Jam & Earl, all HD and... Kind Do you remember of, the Mega Drive game, yeah? Yeah, yeah, kind of done up and uh, looked really nice. They raised half a million dollars as well. So this was done by Adult Swim Games, who are the guys that have that kids' cartoon channel. Really weird name for it, isn't it? Adult Swim. Yeah,
1: you wouldn't associate that with being a kids' channel, really, would you? Baby? Yeah, yeah, maybe someone <laughs> can inform us why it's called that,
0: but... Um, yeah, they they were kind of looking at releasing it, and it all kind of didn't happen, and people were wondering, is this game going to happen at all? You know, it's are we so going to get Yeah, there, are man. we going to get the new Toe Jam and Earl? Is it going to be Duke Nukem Forever? Yeah, but another group called uh, Human Human Nature Studios have uh, started talking about a potential release date. Now they've also said that they're going to be doing console releases which was a big worry by people they thought maybe you'll just get a small steam version yeah. and there'll be no console but they're saying that they're going into private beta at the moment and you know it's it's going to be out and it's going to be fun. Have you got a clip there? Yeah, so this is a little trailer that they've put on. The game is going to be called Toe
1: Jam and Earl: Back in the Groove Spot. So check this out.
2: Yo, well, Earl, we made it back to Earth.
1: And it only took 26 years. Not bad.
2: First thing we need to do is get some new pages. Mine must be broke, because I haven't gotten a page since
3: 1991.
1: I just hope people recognize us now that we're all hard deaf and whatnot.
3: Earl,
2: I'm red with three legs. You're orange and huge. We're aliens and we're mad funky. People going
1: to recognize us. Jam & Earl back in the groove. It's an all-new adventure game from 1991. That is awesome. I love the fact they've got all those references like pages and stuff in there as well. It's kind of like that Bubsy trailer that we played for the new Bubsy game when he was kind of referencing like, uh, you know, Sonic the Hedgehog, call him up and all that stuff. I love it when they kind of do those references. Well, I think this is going to be
0: ideal for the Switch as well and they're saying that the Switch version of the game is ready and has been kind of sent for certification by Nintendo. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, we'll see if that comes back. <laughs> if not, it'll be available on your favourite crack system.
1: <laughs> but what I like about that trailer as well is, I mean, do you remember To & It was kind of full of 90s pop references and it was even that kind of funk soundtrack that was in the background. Yeah, it reminded me of
0: like Cool Spot and that that kind of period. Yeah, the tood period, I think, is uh, been commonly
1: referred <laughs> tood, to these days. Yeah. It's cool to see all franchises making a comeback though, and especially games like that where... It's kind of more on the obscure end. It's like you didn't think you'd ever get to see a new Toji and game, but it's awesome that you can.
0: And it's good that this Kickstarter's been saved.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: And speaking of good Kickstarters,
1: well, there is going to be a Kickstarter for some brand new Amiga cases. Now, we did tease this a little bit earlier on, but let's get him on Skype. Welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, Stephen Jones.
2: Thanks so much for having me, and it's really nice to talk. I've been, been uh, kind of looking forward to this to be on your show for quite some time now. it would be good.
1: Well, we're big fans of your YouTube channel as well, because uh, you've actually got your own channel
2: that's been running for quite a while now, haven't you? Yeah, on and on, it has been going on. <laughs> so I think since about 2007, 2008. I, I've mostly been doing AROS, but I always saw in the videos about my Amigas, and uh, my collection seems to have grown recently, so um, probably to do something to do with this case.
1: Every time I go on YouTube, I get a recommendation, you know, is uh, is it the Raspberry Pi the best Amiga? Oh, it always comes in my sidebar. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, I always remember yeah. <laughs> uh, seeing you around at shows as well, like uh, World of Amiga and stuff like that.
2: Yeah, I mean, the show, God, the shows were so long ago. It just seems like a different lifetime, but I I, I loved doing the shows. I really did. Um, they they were such good fun. It's just a shame. But Well, I missed the last one. There was the 30th. Uh, sorry, I missed the German one I wanted to go to, the Amiga 32, I think it was. I went to the one in London, the 30th, and that was pretty good, so...
1: Ravi was in Germany, he said it was a lively weekend. Oh, you'd
2: love it. It was it was rampacked and there was lots of Pilsner.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah, I could tell you a story about some schnapps and Pilsner, but that was back in the uh, 90s. Well, that
1: sounds interesting. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah. Well, that was the one where I, I we went partying the night. We set the, set the stand up, went partying the night before, drunk uh, way too much, finished about two in the morning, and then when everyone was turning up at the stand in the morning, every, uh, the... Guy was welcoming me. Said you'll have to come back in an hour. He's absolutely out of it. <laughs> <I don't, laughs> way too much.
1: Well, Steve, for people that might not be familiar with your background, I mean, tell us just briefly about the, the Amiga and projects you were involved with back then.
2: So, I suppose the one most people hopefully remember me for is obviously the 1500, which they've probably seen the video, but that was where you, um, we tried to build an Amiga 2000 type machine based on the 500, and that was relatively um successful. Um we had a bit of a run in with Commodore obviously, but um and then I developed later developed a product called Sime system which I think was probably one of the best things I was involved with um which allowed you to make a a hybrid Amiga PC system um and it was on what you felt like you was running a single computer. Um, and you could retarget the Amiga's graphics onto the Windows display. Nowadays, we take for granted virtual machines. Um, back then, you had to do it with multiple computers, and we kind of smoothed that over, so you could run Amiga software, Mac software, and Windows software all at the same time. Um, I was also a distributor for a number of uh, 24-bit graphics cards, and I was a distributor for CanDo, and there was a whole lot of other things um, that I did. Um, up until late 90, very late 90s, until the Gateway um well the gateway thing um which kind of finished it all off
1: i mean for those that might not have seen um neil's video that he did about this amiga 1500 it was essentially you transplanted the amiga 500's case into a big box system didn't you and it would turn it into a machine that you could have loads of expansions for
2: yeah so basically the idea was you take the amiga 500 motherboard and the floppy disk and you put it into our case the Amiga 500 keyboard went into a separate housing that we had. And there was an expansion socket. So you could put, um, you could put, for example, an A590 disassembled inside or a GVP card, a SCSI RAM card. And then you could stick a flicker fixer in there. You could stick an accelerator card. And it all went into this really sturdy metal case. Um, and we, we took it all around the big shows. We was taking it to like the CAD shows and the music fairs and that kind of thing, a high-end professional stuff um we, we never bumped into commodore there unfortunately but um so we, we tried to promote it as uh, the amiga as a serious machine but we, you know we was obviously been a bit cheeky with the name um but also the fact that uh we was if you built a machine with this and the amiga 500 you can knock off about 750 pound off of the cost as if you built the same thing with the 2000
0: well your new machine is a, a desktop case and It's just absolutely beautiful. And having a desktop case nowadays is a real rarity. And you can put other boards in there? Yeah, so this is, you're
1: actually bringing back the Amiga 1500 as a new design
2: yes I mean it 's important for people to know i didn 't actually design the original one I, I I do keep trying to make this clear um i myself and James we distributed it for them um, and it was always one of the things that I thought was a fantastic concept, and I and I loved it, but you know it 's like over the years you think I, I would have done things slightly differently um, and I know that David Pleasant had agreed to put the correct the story of the fifteen hundred in his new book, and so I thought, well. I mean, it, I really set this up as a hobby. I I, I, did, I thought I'd do a design, and if there's anyone interested, then maybe we can rekindle the flame. But it's actually gone nuts. Um really shocked me. So um, I, I, I'm not going to claim huge uh, credit for the design because I basically am copying the look of that beautiful A3000. Mm. Um, but I've, I think I've added some bits that the 3000 could never have done, and and it's so it's more like, as I said, it's like the new Mini compared to the old Mini. Um, but it can do an awful lot.
1: And what kind of... Cause I mean, I, I've seen the videos that have you've done on YouTube and uh, Neil did as well. So essentially this is going to be a modern version of that Amiga 1500 that you did back in the day, but you can fit a load of different machines in here. I mean, what boards are going to be able to fit into this new case?
2: Yeah. So the yeah, interesting thing is, uh, okay. So the main one is it takes the Amiga 500, same thing again, put an expansion slot in it, uh, et, cetera, et cetera. But we can also take a uh, 1200 motherboard and the 600 motherboards. They won't set at the moment in the early stages. They won't have the expansion card because of connector issues, mm-hmm. maybe mm-hmm. later on. Um, the we can stick in a Tabor 1222 when, uh, when that's finished and ready. We can stick any micro ATX motherboard in a, any mini ITX motherboard in it. So, pretty much, um, I obviously wanted a really good Amiga. I mean, I've got a vampire and I've got um, you know V Lab Motion, all this kind of stuff. I want to build with a 500, but I also want to build a virtual reality machine. A lot of people don't know that virtuality, when it was the first commercial virtual reality system in the late 90s and that was powered by commodore amiga uh, 3000s yeah we obviously want to sell these to uh pc builders who have a retro leaning that's i think that's the best way of putting it and it is very true there are so few i don't even know of any desktop cases so um you know i'm hoping um the 500 Sales will be great, and it will. I'm pretty confident we'll do the, the numbers we need. And then, then you know, the Amiga owners will get a nice case, hopefully, and they'll be very happy with it. But there is a potential that the PC community may actually like what, what we're doing here um, and have a bit of nostalgia and yet still build a really powerful virtual reality – I can't even say it – a virtual reality system based around a case that's meant – designed to look just like the three thousand
0: and you've also got a choice of colors so uh, we've never seen a black 3000 before <laughs>
2: oh yeah yeah so the colors at the moment are obviously two is the black and then there'll be it's it's called oyster white um and if anyone wants to actually look online if you search online for RAL color charts and then look for the number 1013 which after a poll I did on on my Facebook group that was the winner um so it's it's kind of making it look retro But not too much, but but a nice creamy colour, similar to the original 3000. Um, But as it turned out, in the beginning, it was everyone went, no, no, I want it. It's got to be white. It's got to be looking. It's got to be the same colour. And then it's all the black diagrams. No, I've got to have black. I've got black. (laughs) So it's about a 25% going for the white and about 75 for the black at the moment.
1: See, I looked at it and I thought, yeah, I mean, I, I could either put a vampire machine in there and have a really sexy desktop Amiga, or I thought maybe i will just make a really good emulation machine and put it in there. That'd be nice.
2: Yeah. Um, the other thing I'm trying to do at the moment is, I, can't, I don't want to talk too much about it at the moment, but I'm hoping to put a really good, if people want me to build them a, a complete PC system, mm. to be able to include a really good, emulation system with it as well. Um, So they get the best best of both worlds. Now, be be that uh, on Windows or Linux, hopefully we'll be doing Linux, but some people obviously, if you're into virtual reality, you've got no choice, you have to have Windows. but I'm hoping to put together a, a good little package for that that can include it with the systems. Um and then they get the obviously they can have their Amiga line and look making it look really nice. And we're trying to I'm hoping to base it around AmiKit at the moment. So
1: So when are these likely to be available and have you got like a cost in mind?
2: Well the target price has always been £150 for the case. Mm-hmm. Um obviously that doesn't include the keyboard, that's purely the case. Um, And there's an LED board inside. Um, And obviously all the screws are bits you need to hold it together. Um, So we originally was looking at prices, and then I did a poll on uh, a1k.org um and i thought well you know i'll, I'll see what they say and it came 150 i mean i know everyone says oh the you know the the cheaper the better but actually 150 the numbers were ridiculous it was like two or three hundred people said yes i'll have it and the, you know going up the list it was next to none so i've i've, I've aimed to do it for 150 and as long as we get the numbers it's looking like i need 350 to 400 to make the numbers but i'm over halfway there already with confirmed email addresses um, so I'm fairly confident we can we can meet them numbers, and then the case will be 150. I, it's hard to say at the moment about anything more than that. I, I think the expansion board for the 500 will probably be about uh, just below or just above 50 pounds. And then of course there's I, I'm not sure about the case for the keyboard on the 500 as yet. Um, also the other things that are included. Um, I don't know if you're aware. There's a couple of risers. Two different risers, a thirty mil riser and a forty five mil riser, which you can screw on or not, and then you can slide your keyboard underneath it if you've got one that fits. Oh a keyboard garage. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, nice. I mean it's taking the best from the one thousand down to three thousand, basically.
1: Well, it's awesome. I think 150 is a good price as well. I mean, I remember paying about 400 quid for that that Commodore gaming case that they made about 10 years ago.
2: Yeah, well, interestingly, the original 1500 was 200 pounds, and that was 30 years ago or something. (laughs) (laughs) It's actually worked out. I thought, how's it it cheaper? Um, But I I, I did the costings, and then I went to the – well, interestingly, the manufacturer that's making the metalwork is exactly the same company that did the original 1500s. Oh, wow. Yeah, I know. It's really weird. I thought, I wonder if they're still there and I found them. And and it was only one guy that remembered, you know, with his long grey hair and um but yeah he remembered it so um we're going back to the same manufacturer which is which is to be honest is really nice and they're not far they're just up the road from me
1: well i can't wait to get my hands on one because i know recently there's been those great projects with the amiga 500 and 1200 cases but getting a new big box amiga case you know that's that's a rarity and definitely something i'd love to get my hands on so looking forward to getting hold of it steven
2: yeah i appreciate that and and people have been so supportive i mean i I've, i've been taken aback i mean um, I I I I'd be honest. When I designed it, I thought that was going to be interesting. This, this would just be me playing around, um, but the Facebook group just grew and grew and grew. And I think we we're we're firing past 1,100 members at the moment. Um, so it's it's been it's been a bit of a surprise, to be honest.
0: Well, when the Kickstarter's launched, we're going to push all our listeners onto
2: it and they should all have a look at your wonderful case.
1: Yeah, and we'll, we'll put a link to the uh, the Facebook group in our show notes as well if people want to join and ask any questions, I'm sure they will.
2: Yeah, that's fantastic. I appreciate it. And if, and if they do want to join the Facebook group, then uh, that's a great place. I'll, I'll give an example why it's been so good. I, I've shown all of the, the good and bad points of the development as we've gone along, but there was a lady in uh, California called Brielle, and um, she said, you gotta put, you got to make that, those drives take five and a quarter inch drives like dvd drives like no 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 it's meant for three and a half no it'll make it too big i can't do that anyway so i looked at it and i thought do you know what if i'm a bit cleverer, tweaked it and so now you can get five and a quarter and you wouldn't really know it to look at the front that it's actually can hold five and a quarters
1: very useful but, but it does though yeah, yeah. awesome well Steve, keep up the good work we can't wait to see it
2: fantastic and, th- and thanks for putting me on the show it's it's nice to um say hello at last
1: and of course, we'll put
2: details to his Kickstarter
1: and the Facebook group in the show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, before we chat to this week's special guest, Chris Abbott, um, I had to mention this because one of my all time favorite games is finally getting another sequel. Now, we love Jeff Minter.
0: Oh, absolutely love him. Llamasoft, you know,
1: fantastic, crazy, crazy software <laughs> company. There's one thing about a Llamasoft game, you can always tell it just by looking at it, can't yeah. you? Yeah.
0: You just look at it, that's Llamasoft.
1: Well, you know, Tempest, obviously that was an old Atari game. Mm. And I remember the control on that, had kind of that weird like, paddle thing that you twist around.
0: Yeah, and it was like a little claw that connect, collected things in a circle.
1: We had to run away from things flying up essentially a grid, and it was a vector-based game, the mm. original, which was really cool. And then, I mean, the original was a very, very interesting game and like nothing else out there at the time. But for me, the one that really captured my attention was Tempest 2000.
0: Ah, uh, that That was the claw one, wasn't it? Well, that was on the Atari Jaguar, wasn't it? Oh, yes, yes, on the Jaguar.
1: And then there were versions on the Sega Saturn and the PlayStation as well, but the Jag was really the best version I think
0: we've also played the uh, Nuon version. Yeah, well, that was (laughs)
1: Tempest 3000. 3000, okay. That was a sequel that, yeah, it was on the Nuon, which uh, if you don't know what the Nuon is, Google it. It was essentially meant to be a game system that was inside a DVD player. Didn't take off. Massive failure. And I think, you know, Tempest 3000 is like one of only like four or five games that are on the Nuon. But... It always had, again, that llama soft graphical style. Jeff uses a lot of kind of in your face colors, a lot of neon. Banging music as well. Well, Tempest 2000 on the Jaguar, the soundtrack was that good. It was a proper rave soundtrack. It actually got released as a CD audio album. I kind as of well. like
0: Wipeout or something of his day. You
1: know? Yeah, pretty much. And what I love about this is now they're bringing out Tempest 4000. So, you know, technically, it's a follow up to the Nuon game. Yeah. <laughs> More people are going to be able to play this one, though. Jeff Minter is behind it and it is available this week. So it came out on July 17th, a bit earlier on this week, on PlayStation 4 and Xbox One. uh, Released by Atari. Oh, is it going to be on the Atari box? uh, When if it ever comes out, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Have you read the news, Ravi? (laughs) But what I do love is, again, it's kind of got all of that really, you know, really obvious Llamasoft style. Those neon graphics. And do you want to hear a bit of the soundtrack? Totally, yeah. Check this out. This is on a little trailer video they put up. That banging, like, 90s piano house already.
0: It's like I'm in a a tent in a forest (laughs) in an old-school rave. (laughs) Got your glow sticks? Yeah.
1: Eat electric death, it says on the screen. This looks so good. I mean, if you played, um, my favourite Jeff Minter game of recent years was Polybius.
0: Yeah, Polybius. uh, I I really want to play Polybius, but it's out on the PS4. And I can't, I've i got a HTC Vive, so I, w- I want to kind of play that crazy VR game. But it's a, it's amazing because Llamasoft seem to be really producing a lot of stuff at the moment.
1: What it? I love about it is, so, yeah, I mean, yeah, people are loving the games they're putting out. But what's kind of really good about this, the fact that Atari are releasing it as well, is I, I think Jeff actually did do like a cloned version of Tempest 2000 that came out on the PS3 a few years ago. And Atari actually essentially tried to sue him. Yeah, I remember seeing some stuff in the news, like, how
0: dare you sue Jeff Minter? Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. everyone was outraged.
1: You don't sue Jeff. Um, So it's really cool that now they're behind this project and working with him and he's got the official name and we finally got, you know, a proper sequel to... Well, it's uh,
0: 100 levels as well, free game modes and a a retro techno soundtrack. What I'm really hoping is... That they will do a VR version of this as well. Oh yeah, me too. I, I really want to come round your house and play on Polybius.
1: Absolutely. Next time you round, I mean, it's probably one of the only games I really use my PSVR for. I don't
0: days. believe you though when you say it's better when you're drunk.
1: <laughs> a... It's more. Um messes with your mind more when you're drunk
0: <laughs> <I> can imagine <laughs> you can sit there and just be like whoa yeah.
1: you'd enjoy it Ravi I think it's yeah. very much a you game yeah. so if you want to find out more about that it is available this week uh, Tempest 4000 a long last a brand new Jeff Minter official Tempest game we'll put a link in the show notes at theretrohour.com along with the rest of the stories that we've talked about this week and also keep your emails coming in as well and um, we'll do some more next week's show uh, show at theretrohour.com if you listen let us know where you listen um, we did like those pictures people were sending in a while ago where they listened
0: to the Retro Oh, that was really cool. Yeah, I'd love to see more of that. We had one the other day, somebody walking their dogs Yeah, that was it. Yeah. Just nice, you know? Yeah, yeah. simple, day. good to see. <laughs> and
1: uh, you can tweet us at Retro L UK. Uh, Facebook are on there as well. Instagram, we'll put all those links in our show notes as well. And you can get us on any platform you like. And the next episode will be released on Friday. Right now, let's get nerdy about Commodore 64 music. Chris Abbott is this week's special guest. You're listening to the Retro Owl Podcast and it is time for the main event, event that we've been looking forward to. Our special guest this week, welcome to the show, Chris Abbott.
3: Hello, everybody.
1: Now, Ravi did get you on. He said, you know, you managed to convince you because you were part of the Abbott family.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're creepy and kooky.
1: <laughs> well, let's get into your early history with computers then, Chris. I mean, what was it that initially got you interested in computers then? Do you remember where it all kind of began for you?
3: Um, computer in my secondary school. Hmm. I um, walked in and uh, they had eight pets, because uh, it was a good school. <laughs> this is 1982, so uh, they had eight pets, one with a graphics card. And um, once I realised what you could do with them, I pretty much never left the computer room again. Well, what kind of stuff were you doing on them? Um, programming basic, uh, learning machine code, playing Space Invaders, uh, Pet Invaders when the teacher wasn't looking, playing the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy unofficial text adventure. That was so hard, wasn't it? I remember that. I learned the the meaning of the word undulating from that game.
1: <laughs> so, I mean, the, the Commodore PET, though, it was. It kind of felt like something out of the future, I guess, back then, didn't it? Seeing that with its the kind of Darth Vader helmet style and that green screen, it must have seemed really amazing as a kid.
3: Oh yeah, yeah. Plus the little um, science fiction chirp it did when it when it switched on. So,
0: what was the first computer that you owned yourself? It was an Atari Four
3: Hundred, sixteen K. My my grand bought it for me uh, around about uh, uh, 1982. uh, Yeah, 1982. I mean, I I was typing in magazine listings and stuff, and uh, but I I couldn't get to grips with machine code on that, and uh, mostly I just played Preppy and Seamus and uh, um, Protector when it loaded, and uh, just uh, It's the first time I've been impressed with computer music other than when I uh, saw Boot Hill at the arcades when I was seven and it played the Death March.
0: Well, I I heard that you uh, first got into music, like really into it, in around 1985. What was the uh, kind of influences that really got you into music then?
3: It was uh, Commodore Commodore music and um, I, I got a keyboard, um, a uh, Yamaha keyboard, which I learned to play Axle F on. Ah, so you started with the basics, and then how did you get that working with your Atari 400 then? Not until 1987 when I got a MIDI interface for the Atari, and then plugged that into a Casio CZ101. But uh, what I was mostly doing there was uh, recreating Commodore 64 tunes anyway. So uh, uh, from 1983 to 1986 it was just like Commodore 64 Composer after Commodore 64 Composer being really impressive. Um, the music of David Dunn gave way to the music of Paul Norman, uh, James Lisney, Chris Cox, Graham Hansford—all—all all great names that uh, predated the the glory days of uh, Fred Gray, Rob Hubbard, and Martin Gortway and Ben. I think Ben was the first one that showed up on the radar because of Loco. What was the first piece of computer music that really blew your mind then? Uh, Preppy on the Atari Four Hundred. Then Half uh, a Bother on the Commodore Sixty Four and Revenge of the Mutant Camels. Um, and China Minor and uh, Tales of the Arabian Nights. I think it was that kind of stuff, the, the classical stuff, um, that actually fed into what I'd, the stuff I'd previously loved on BBC test cards um, and kind of uh, got computer music and classical music and ragtime music all kind of mixed up in one big, big ball for me.
0: Were you drawn to MIDI because it had the kind of connection with instruments and you could control it rather than say programming on the computer in
3: binary t- it was easier um i, I the, the 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 equipment didn't I, I didn't have the i didn't have the time or the um the equipment to be able to learn proper sid driver programming at the time um so mi, mi, i was just using what i had basically when i when i got an old St- uh, amstrad studio 100 which was a really cheap four track machine that had a record player in it i used that i just recorded sid off the off the Commodore and then uh, played some drums live over the top. Eventually Ubix music came out and there was something I could use to actually produce real SIDS, so that was helpful. Well, I was always impressed with with any computer music that sounded good, but um, there was something that, especially Rob Hubbard did with the the way the voices sounded that made it sound so much more sophisticated and lively than everything before, like even in something like Action Biker, where... Uh, The harmonies and the way you vibrate the voice, the vibrato, is just um, different to anything that's happened before.
0: So you built up quite a big collection of these kind of C64 midis and uh, put them online. Did this get attention of other of musicians?
3: Um, yeah, that was the 90s I started doing that. Well, that that was when I, I managed to get hold of a Sound Blaster AWE32 from and started programming the Wavetable midis. And uh, Michael Schwent wrote uh, Sid to MIDI for me, which uh, enabled to to recapture some of the performance stuff. Yeah, it, it went onto the uh, very early internet, and um, it attracted the attention of the fans and a few of the musicians who were paying attention on CompuServe and AOL. Um, there were people like Graham Norgate from uh, Free Radical Design, who uh, was a, an early fan. I had to track down Rob Hubbard on CompuServe by emailing all the Rob Hubbards on CompuServe, which was quite fun. You could do that at the time.
1: Yeah, it was a lot much smaller place, the internet then, wasn't it? <laughs>
3: it really was. So I, I got in touch with him, and uh, there was a, a bit of toing and fro but eventually, uh, via a very circuitous route involving a... A Filipino German record producer who was doing Christmas songs, we got to back in time.
1: Well, cause I know today we kind of take it for granted that you can tweet anyone in the world pretty much and hopefully get a reply. It must have been pretty incredible to track down and actually talk finally to your heroes, I guess, you know, on that early version of the internet.
3: Yeah, it was. It was, um, it was amazing. And we got, I got, managed to get in touch with quite, quite a few of them, some of them later on when the internet had matured a bit. Um, uh, I think uh, before, before back in time, around about ninety six, ninety seven, I was already in touch with Fred Gray and Rob, and I think uh, I think Martin as well. There, there was a big period of of uh, getting in touch with people prior to that CD release.
0: Did you, Did you get much feedback on your tunes then?
3: Uh, I got uh, yeah, I I got kept some letters that I got of people were reviewing them. I think reviewing is a lost art these days. I, I've I've got a couple of people who used to. Write me two-page, two-page letters reviewing every single MIDI file I'd done, which was um, pretty flattering.
1: Yeah, I was going to say it takes like someone's real commitment
3: to do that, I guess. And then they had to put it in an envelope and post it. Yeah, yeah that, thats commitment. And this was—it's a lost art these days. You ask people to review stuff, and even if they loved it. Uh, it, it just doesn't happen really yeah as people have lost the ability to express their express their feelings in in written the written word i think not all, not fully of course because there are still journalists out there and people like andrew fisher who who do great stuff and paul morrison and uh, but um, reviewing generally from fans um, i wish there was more of it it would be nice because musicians need more good good feedback in their lives i think or even very sensible, constructive criticism. I, although I've got a good team of beta testers around me who are uh, who are always giving me feedback. So um, I, I, they, they'll tell me if I'm, I'm cra- doing crap.
0: Well, it's amazing the amount of kind of you're right. The amount of reviews and feedback you get in BBSs and on disc mags and all over the place, really.
3: Oh, absolutely. Um, and in in the old days, um, I think uh, when back in time, one was released, people were. There were two sets of people, really. Those who were quite gentle with it because it it had achieved something, even if it wasn't technically perfect. And you look back on it now, and it uh, even even after releasing it, I knew it had the technical limitations that were imposed by the budget. But um, people would it it had Rob Hubbard on it, for, uh, re- returning to remixing, uh, or remixing for the first time, and it was official. And you know the composers got paid. Um, people were kind to it because of that some people were more of a who are you and why are you doing this to our beloved music making it available for actual money and that was slightly less pleasant and it goes on to this day to an extent i found it really interesting that
0: you when back in time was released it was kind of a, a commercial product and i'd never seen uh rob hubbard on one other than a game you know it was mm-hmm. a, a musical commercial project now, i thought that was really good that was opening up to the uh wider audience of listeners rather than just the gamers
3: yeah um i get it getting the original composers blessing and uh getting it so that they they benefited from it, it both from you know the creative the creative uh ability to exercise control over their own work and reach the listeners with it and also to actually earn some money because they need to eat as well it all fed into a kind of uh, a good feeling about to uh, about that that's that got us through uh, quite a number of cds and the fact i'm still working with rob and he's just uh re-orchestrated monty on the run for a symphony orchestra so uh, 18 years ago rob hubbard took my monty on the run midi file and improved it 200%. Hmm. And now, in 2018, he's done exactly the same thing with My Monty on the Run, <laughs> orchestration for a Symphony Orchestra. So we're right back at square one.
1: That, that first release, you actually got Gremlins approval, didn't you?
3: Yeah, they, they, was, they were very good about it. Ian Stewart's always been very good. They, they, getting other people to agree to some of the things proved very difficult. Um, Steve Wilcox was uh, not particularly helpful. Although Although, looking at it, because of the lack of written contracts that the composers have with the software companies, in fact, for a lot of the freelance stuff, the software companies didn't own the tune. Oh, wow. They just owned a license to it. Um, so um, in a sense, I was I was asking the wrong people. Um, this is uh, uh, something that uh, is, it continues to be uh, an issue these days with the System 3 stuff, but uh, I can't go into that too much. Because, uh, you know, lawyers.
0: Yeah, because uh, a lot of people try and do these retro projects nowadays and they really struggle getting rights for every individual bit and they're all owned by different groups. So it's a, an amazing achievement to actually get something out.
3: <laughs> um, it is. I mean, in 2001 and 2002, I actually did a round of all the composers to, to sign the publishing rights to most of their stuff. And that's that more than anything else is what's enabled the the commodore sixty four remix scene to continue going because if if I want to do an orchestral concert, I don't have to run around too much asking other people for permission except for the composers and that's the way it should be um we We've got defender of the Crown in there, so I've got to go in our cinema way for permission um and if Ghouls and Ghosts ever makes it on, I've got to find whoever is in Capcom who deals with that stuff. <laughs> Even though it's a, you know, half of its original Fallen. But um, most of it, if there's a big enough catalogue that we don't have to go through all the all the stuff that um people doing orchestral concerts for consoles have to do, like get N- N- Nintendo's approval for every note or get Sega on board or persuade Square Enix to do something. But I, guess, um,
1: but I guess back in the day the commodore 64 scene there were a lot of small companies involved who then got swallowed up by bigger companies and then bigger companies so it can be a bit I, like following the, the golden trail or something i guess trying to find it
3: well it could at some point you just have to say okay the paperwork is obviously lost in the mist of time and no one cares about it anymore so who has a better right to the rights to their stuff the guy who wrote it or some mysterious functionary with mysteriously missing paperwork in the middle of an organization that no one has even heard of a Commodore 64. And that's why Martin Galway stuff gets released.
0: (laughs) I've heard about the High Voltage Group, and I was uh, wondering what it was and how you got involved.
3: All the individual people in the High Voltage Group is is, uh, the the group who organize and preserve and document all all of the SIDS ever released. Um, they're, they're, even now they're releasing updates regularly that contain hundreds of new SIDs, new ones that have just been created, old ones that get found on demo discs I think it's it's up to 50 or 60,000 now and it's, an, it's a collection which there's a, a hell of a lot of um, effort goes into actually uh, establishing the information about it, getting the authorship credits right um, correcting mistakes as soon as they happen and most of the other collections out there just don't do that. There's there's authors assigned to the wrong pieces. There's uh, broken cracks, stuff with sub tunes missing, and there's just not the same discipline that High Voltage has. I am all of the people in High Voltage. I more or less came to know right back at, in the in 94, 95, when I started doing the midis. And when I started um, taking on the publishing rights of the tunes from the composers, then it, uh, I had to have a working relationship with, with HVSC to give them some, you know, I am not a lawyer type of advice on various copyright things, um, such as um, I, I, I insisted that they they change the copyright tag to published by because copyright is a legal statement and published by is a historical fact Um, uh, because uh, otherwise you can get people using that stuff in legal settings when it's not actually a legal document like people producing it in a court case saying oh yeah this says it's copyright X so it must be copyright X and you know hang on someone just wrote that it's like trying to correct stuff in Wikipedia sometimes
0: when you're making these kind of studio versions or or Different versions of the C64 tracks. Do you earn a new kind of respect
3: for their complexity, even though they were very small and simple? Well, they're actually not so simple. The the composition that goes into many of the Commodore 64 tracks, not all of them, because you know, in any platform, there's 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 a lot of meh, uh, me. uh, But the 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 ones that we're doing for the orche- the orchestral thing, you, you do come out of it with a new sense of Respect for the composition and melody writing, and and the sheer kind of music they packed in. I mean, for for some, for for all of the all of the composers, really. I mean, it's it's a different kind of admiration you get for what Tim Follin does with Black Lamp than w- w- with what Rob Hubbard does in Spellbound, with what the the sheer tune smithery that Martin Galway pulled off in Times of Law or Parallax High School but uh, when, when you when you transform Parallax, something like Parallax High School and Barbar- Barbarian 2, mash them up and make them sound like John Williams, classical music people who have never heard it before just go gaga. And that shows to me that this stuff, which, you know, the the, the tagline for the concert is going to be, I told you they were real music. <laughs> because that's essentially, you've got this blippy-bloppy, Stereotype, these are serious pieces of work that just happen to be done on limited equipment by people who had a lot of musical training or musical background or simply musical talent. Um, On game music today, it's not as important, the music doesn't have to stand alone, it's kind of um, discouraged from standing alone in many ways because it's there as an exercise and atmosphere. Back then, these tunes were written to be entertaining in their own right, and that makes them ideally suited to great concert material. Well, that's one thing
0: that you've really kicked off, and uh, doing something special was, you know, back in time live, and that was absolutely amazing with so many different artists coming together. And, you know, with video game soundtracks, they're often forgotten, but they kind of remain in our consciousness. And uh, the idea behind back in time live was it aimed at a general music audience or or just the kind of C64 people
3: it would have been nice if more general people had turned up to it to experience the magic but in the end um it's very difficult to persuade someone who's never heard something to love something and especially to get up off their butts and go to Birmingham on a Wednesday drab <laughs> evening to experience it um so in the end you end up having to you end up preaching to the converted um, the the concert that's coming up, uh, the concert in Hull, that will have loads and loads of stars at it. Eight uh, bit personages, sixteen bit personages. Paul Norman's flying in, Barry Leach is flying in. Rob's there. Ben's Ben should be there, health permitting. Dave Whitaker will be there. Uh, John Hare. Too many. Too many people to. Too many people to count.
1: Like a who's who's list of anyone that was involved in 8-bit and 16-bit music over here.
3: Well, that's right. I mean, some of them are there to see their music performed by a symphony orchestra. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, how cool is that for a composer? To It's like a gift we can give them at the end of their career to actually, you know, it's the ultimate creative validation. And also the classical, the symphonic versions, they can be put onto sheet music and they can be put on a shelf in a library. Where they will exist for hundreds of years, unless you know, nuclear explosions. So there's there's an element of historical preservation of some of some of these things.
1: You're not going to lose it to floppy disk rot.
3: Absolutely, yes. Uh, paper lasts for ages. Needs to be acid free though. But uh, I suspect that there will be some curious people at that concert, and I hope there'll be some people who have who have experienced video game music performed symphonically in other platforms. Who come along to see what the Commodore 64 stuff is like, and I like—I I like to think they'd be very impressed by how the music has come out, how much emotion and passion there is, how much how much meat there is in it, um, and uh, how much emotion it has. So,
1: when is that concert coming up, and where's it at? Um,
3: it's on June the fifteenth next year uh, at Hull City Hall. Um, the plan after that is to. Uh, is for that concert to impress financiers so much that we can do it with the London Symphony Orchestra and uh, with, a, with a, a 60% new program. Oh, wow. Uh, the, the, the orchestra that played Star Wars playing Rob Hubbard. Yes, please.
1: But we've had Rob on the show a couple of times, and I think that's really interesting, that point that you made. And Rob said that to us that when he was there at his Commodore 64 making those tracks, in his head he could hear like a full orchestra playing it. So I guess, you know, it was a limitation of the technology he had at the time. That you can now yeah. kind of
3: realize that vision. Yeah, and I mean, there's, there's, I don't think there's much in the world uh, more meaningful to Rob than being able to ad- adapt his work for a real orchestra and have it played by real people in a real hall, and have people react emotionally to it on that level. Um, it's just, uh, it's just the ultimate for him. I mean, he he came back to Sid for Project Hubbard, and he had he enjoyed it on that level. Um, did some did some good stuff got back into the technology again to the extent that we were like, Oh right. We thought you'd forgotten all that stuff <laughs> apparently not. <laughs> <laughs> like riding a bike, you never forget. <laughs> yeah, apparently. Um and then he started working with Jason on oh yeah, I think this vibrato should we should change this vibrato. I couldn't do that back in the day because I didn't I didn't have the CPU, but now we can do it. So let's do that. And let's adapt this and uh, this and this and uh let and we were like, whoa. And then there was like two, he delivered two SIDS in two days. And I was like, what year is this again? <laughs> but even though, even though I mean, we're still waiting for a completely new Sid because there was one of them that was done that he didn't feel was up to it, that was an adapt- adaptation of an earlier work. So he's he's off doing another Sid, which I think is going to be a, a bike riding one. Well,
0: who's the most interesting kind of musician
3: you've worked with or, or kind of seen perform live and thought, wow, didn't know that was in you? Probably Ben. Um, the thing is, Ben is a performer and also a composer, and Rob is a composer and also a performer. Um, ben is, is born to perform and he will pull out stuff. I mean, well, he did a gig at the Underworld with Fast Loaders where he was performing the Last Inch of Wastelands. He was on chemotherapy, he was dead. And yet, for just that period of time he needed to, um, he pulled out all the stops. You can see him pouring himself into that performance, and uh, I was privileged to witness it.
1: It must have been pretty touching. It really was, yeah. Well, Chris, is there anyone that you would like to work with still,
3: or any game soundtracks, or anything you'd love to update and do live? Um, well, everything I'm doing. updating, I'm doing as part of the orchestral project, so I'm kind of working my way through my own wish list there. Um, I... I I wouldn't mind. Uh, I wouldn't even mind branching out to other things I've liked, such as uh, the, the uh, Lucas Art stuff or Paper Mario or whatever, because orchestrating is just a, a great thing to do. Um, but uh, but also branching out to the uh, Amiga stuff uh, for a uh, 16-bit symphony at some point.
0: Well, were you uh,
3: surprised for demand
0: like stuff like uh, retro vinyl and you know all these kind of extras that people are willing to. Pay for nowadays that maybe they wouldn't have previously.
3: Um, slightly surprising, I guess we've all we've all got to our forties and got some disposable income. It's it's good that people want these tangible things, and uh, sometimes they're actually works of art. The Project Projectedology vinyl is a it definitely is a work of art. Um, it it is a beautiful thing.
1: Well, even vinyl itself had a bit of a comeback in recent years. I don't know they sell it in like Tesco's now when you go in there.
3: That was a surprise, yeah. No one saw that coming. Well, no one I know saw that coming. It's good, but uh, the minimum quantities mean you don't want to go nuts on that.
0: One really interesting project I found you did, uh, Ninja Musicology, um, kind of exploration of the last Ninja games and the music behind them. Um, What went into that project?
3: A lot of Jarl H. Olsen's time, really. It was his dream project that he'd worked on for... Pretty much decades. And finally, uh, just like I had to become an orchestrator to realize my dream, he had to become one of the world's best guitarists to realize his, which was to be able to play all of the Last Ninja uh, melody lines on his guitar live without editing. And there are some, uh, Ben Daglish said that some of those lines weren't meant to be played by humans, but he damn well plays them. So uh, Ninja Musicology is one of those things where, um, and this happened quite a lot, which is someone comes to me and says, I want to do this project. This is my passion project. And I go, oh, OK, then.
1: So obviously Project
3: Hubbard has been
1: huge um, all over the, the retro scene recently. I mean, for people that might not be too familiar with Project Hubbard, because it is very big, who's involved in it and what exactly is
3: it? It's the, the official, Rob Hubbard's official biography. Um, there will be no other. Um, and it uh, that's Paul Morrison, Kenny McAlpine, uh, who's an academic at the University of Abertay, a huge Rob Hubbard fan, but also able to write about Rob's stuff in a very um, accessible way. He's like, he really knows his stuff with the academic side of chip music, but he doesn't write in an academic way. And uh, just um, all of the details about his stuff, Rob's disassembled some of his code and annotated it and uh, we've, there's a tracker being written for it that will be available I think to to buyers of the book so they can do their own Rob Hubbard SIDS and save them out as code dissections of his driver at looking at how he's affected the fan base um, and some very good uh, biography biographical data Rob spends a lot of time going around Europe and and the UK Gigging with with various bands, and uh, there's some great stories from that time.
1: I think the thing about Rob is, I mean, he's still he's such a humble guy as well, isn't he? The fact that yes. he's like such a legend in the the computer music scene, and he, he just seems so like down to earth whenever you talk to him.
3: Yeah, and he's always had a hard time getting his head round what he means to people. Mm. I, I think the the orchestral concert helps by making him feel as if his music matters in a more cultural setting. And uh, Project Hubbard helped because it, it was a concrete vote of confidence in Rob and it really made him um, admit to himself that it, yes, it's, it's, that stuff was important and it did matter and it wasn't just stuff he did at the time to make a buck. I, I think Rob has always preferred to have have people look at his, his, his art and music than him as a person, even though as a, as a person he is interesting and funny. And very, no, really knows his stuff, and has got lots of interesting things to say about music and and life in in general. Sometimes, but he's always been uncomfortable being the focus of attention, except when, oddly enough, performing. Uh, so I think that's. But but when he's performing, he's being he's being appreciated for something he's doing in the moment so in his mind he deserves that because he's a performer on stage people are there to listen and clap and they do being venerated for something you did 25 years ago that you'd never know you'll be venerated for and that's an entirely different mental state but he's getting used to it it's it's there's been such a lot going on and um so that when when he came back to Sid, he realized that and uh he, he's we've got still got to start the the hubbard 80 disc which is the the concept album of what if some of Rob Hubbard's SIDS were covers from a, an album he himself did in 1980 as a synth album well i was gonna say that
0: uh you know project hubbard itself it's got uh for the standard pack three albums but for the deluxe at least seven different albums so uh i know that fast loaders were doing rock hubbard which uh, is, that's that's released now that's released yeah so um what are these albums that are coming out and uh are they all kind of different tributes or?
3: yes yeah that we went to the we went to the people and uh uh, Mark Knight, um, he'd always wanted to do a John Carpenter album with Earth Rob stuff, so this was the excuse to do that. Um, he's obviously he's a huge Rob fan and a huge fan of um, stuff like Kentilla and Delta and Nemesis and uh, Knuckle Busters. And essentially he's done a 50-minute a album with four tracks. And it sounds you, you can you can literally overlay this stuff onto a turned down YouTube video of Big Trouble in Little China, <laughs> and, it, and it works perfectly. Or rollerball, or or whatever. So, uh, so that, that was his passion project. Uh, Uncle and the Bacon. His passion is always doing the big band stuff. Fast does Their passion is doing the the guitar stuff. And everyone on the Hubbard remixed album. That's also. Uh, the brief for everyone is do uh do your favorite tune in your favorite style
0: well, how what have
3: people 's reactions been when
0: you tell them you know you 're kind of involved in these musical projects and you're you 're bringing these video games to a new level with orchestras and stuff like this
3: um it's it 's kind of sunk in over time um, th- th- uh, at this precise moment you know about the concert and I know about the concert, and a few people know about the concert, but it hasn 't been officially announced yet. And the reason for that is that the purchase order for the orchestra is still going through and the box office has yet to open. Um, We'll see what people react when the tickets go on sale, but I'm hoping it will be a fry meme, shut up and take my money.
1: We found a few of your albums on Spotify as well. Um, That must open up to a different audience.
3: Um, Yes. Um, I don't know who comes across it and when, but um, it's always nice that it – I'm not a huge fan of Spotify as a concept. No, no. It's good for the listeners. It's just really, really bad for performers and record labels, mm. which is why the the kickstarters would only ever make it onto, onto Spotify as kind of like a cut down version or something. So the, the backers didn't feel ripped off. Yeah,
1: there's that kind of infamous story about Lady Gaga only made like a hundred thousand dollars in a year or something off Spotify.
3: Yeah, it's uh, it, it's it's not really sustainable. But I don't know how it's going to be unsustained. Maybe when blockchain gets involved and and. Um, you've got kind of cryptocurrency payments of artists and stuff through smart contracts that could uh, that could well change the equation and remove a lot of the middlemen um and that would be probably a good thing
0: when you're surrounded by these musicians uh how'd you stop yourself from you know completely getting excited or are you just totally nervous about the whole thing <laughs> how'd you handle it
3: Well, generally on on days when there are events I'm too panicked and too panicked about small things like who's got who needs pizza yes. uh the, to worry about the fact that there's everyone there you don't really get time to pinch yourself usually it's 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 a, a million practical details uh, when does this thing need picking up is the back line working in, in an orchestral concert i guess it will be different concerns but may mostly mostly be i'm hoping i'll be able to appreciate the event as a spectator as well as as an organizer Because it would be a shame to have that put on and then to actually miss it because I was backstage.
1: Were there any plans to film it and release it?
3: No. An orchestra consists of 80 people. And if you film or record that for commercial release, you've got to have an agreement with each of those people. Unless they're part of a union, in which case you've got to deal with the union. And the cost of that is prohibitive uh, for instance if if you were the the cost of let's say London Symphony Orchestra doing a concert for you is twenty three thousand. If you record that, they'll charge you forty five and that's not and, uh, on top of having to actually record it, having to mix it, having to uh, and everything and, and it it just isn't it just isn't feasible. We'll probably be able to record it in audio for archive purposes. And to also to send to other orchestras so that they can play this music, and so they can, it's a kind of like marketing to orchestras worldwide. So we can send the scores off and they can perform it in their country. So it's a kind of an evangelical mission.
1: Well, I think it's even more of a reason for people to actually try and make it over to Hull for the the actual live event then, isn't it?
3: Well, definitely. I mean, uh, there, I say, we're hoping there will be a London Symphony Orchestra. Well, and we're hoping it will be played elsewhere in the world. Uh, it, it, it would be nice if it became a franchise and went here and there and the other. But if Hull doesn't work and people don't turn up, then none of that stuff will happen. Next, we need a C64
0: The Musical. <laughs> West End yeah.
3: yeah well I think uh, Simon Nicole would be first in line for the lead part in that he's a he, he's a thesp
1: well Chris it's wonderful what you're doing with uh, you know some of our favourite music and treasured memories uh, bringing them into uh, new worlds and new audiences so I uh, just want to say keep up the good work and
3: thank you for joining thank us thank you very podcast. much see you later Bye.